0: So, in Nikiso, as you know, students that pursue an MBA are looking for insight and information mm-hmm. to help them guide their decision and make the most informed choices. What's amazing to me is that as entrepreneurship becomes a far more significant major mm-hmm. at MBA programs around the world, it turns out that the surveys that these students rely on is pretty flawed. How, wow. how do you react to that? Well, that's crazy, but uh, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome
1: to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, innovation, and the global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayoza, and with me always... Mike Grandinetti. We're so happy to be with you today. Lots to cover, so let's get into it. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing our conversation about entrepreneurship, uh, which was a big focus in our previous episode. Uh, most often, the entrepreneur's journey begins with finding the right academic program and the right networks, right? It's a precursor to where you want to go. Uh, we'll get into some of the research today that might help some of you stepping out on your own. It's not just the big schools that you know about. We'll cover some of those, but there's other places to consider. So, Mike, what did you find for us?
0: Yeah, and, and this is really interesting. So, you know, we both have pretty deep connections to the world of business schools and mm-hmm. MBA programs, you know, both as students, but also for me as a professor and yep. who taught entrepreneurship around the world. So for a very long time, we've had these three surveys, that students that wanted to get a, an MBA but wanted to concentrate on entrepreneurship would consult. Maybe the most well-known is U.S. News & World Report. Uh-huh. Okay? And, and the reason it's flawed is it essentially is nothing more than a survey of business school deans and the MBA program directors. So it's really nothing more than a popularity contest <laughs> where peers upvote for their peers. Okay? Not a lot more rigor than that. Hmm. Um, the Financial Times, of course, a, a world-class publication and something I read regularly, mm-hmm. but their their entrepreneurial ranking of MBA programs is is rather unusually lacking in rigor. It's really nothing more than sort of parsing out the alumni survey portion. So again, this is now alumni giving you know kudos to their own university, and, and obviously it's a very self-serving thing. So as they look at their own o- overall MBA ranking survey, mm-hmm. They, they extract that data. Right? That's pretty surprising. It really is for something as credible as the FT. Yeah. And then the one that is by far the most controversial is the Princeton Review. Mm-hmm. And the Princeton Review is based on a, a methodology that is so vague and so discredited that Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, UC Berkeley, MIT, Sloan, and a lot of other top schools won't even cooperate with it. <laughs> so you can just imagine how good that must be. <laughs> so in light of this really surprisingly disappointing um, you know, source of data. Because remember, as we saw, students can spend anywhere from 50 to, with Babson, $100,000 to pursue their MBA. There's real, real money at stake here.
1: Yeah, those expenses, I mean, just looking at some of the costs associated with these programs, it's a real investment. These are people that are making these massive decisions, life-changing decisions, debt after school. I mean, you really have to make the right choice. So those are those are high price points for the for those programs.
0: Absolutely. So so um, John Byrne, who for many years covered um, the NBA beat mm-hmm. for what was Business Week, which is now Bloomberg Business Week, spun out and created an incredibly influential blog called Poets and Quants, and I just love that name. Great and, name. And he finally decided that he would release his first ever ranking of the top entrepreneurial programs at business schools around the world. This was released in 2019? This was released very recently. Fantastic. Just in the last few weeks. Excellent. And so what we're going to do today, I do want to, you know, spend quite a bit of time diving into the results. hmm I think they're quite interesting. And having just recorded the prior session on what for many listeners may be a surprise about the, the delusional belief that, you know, only young entrepreneurs succeed. hmm um, I, I still want to make it very clear that there's so much value to be gained by choosing the right entrepreneurial, you know, program within the right MBA program for the listeners that aspire to do that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we were talking before the break just about uh, how difficult that path is. I mean, all, all three of those uh, references you you pointed to, those were my go-tos in, in, in early 2000, looking at B-School and looking at MBA programs uh, and entrepreneurship programs attached to them. I mean, I ended up uh, really at the time, uh, and I know MIT's was just starting out, but ended up being at Chicago Booth and spending three days there and then uh, spending a week at uh, Stanford to see their entre- entrepreneurship programs, because they really weren't that many in terms of the ones that you think of from the, from the standpoint of
0: network and brand and where you go next. Absolutely. And, and it's very interesting, right? So I was at Babson's centennial celebration mm-hmm. back in September and Babson was so far ahead of the curve. It's crazy. So Babson was teaching entrepreneurship as a legitimate, you know, academic degree a hundred years ago. Wow. And to your point, Nikiso, so up until fairly recently, very, very few schools had, you know, acknowledged that entrepreneurship was, in fact, a credible field of study. Yeah. And not surprisingly, Stanford, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley would be one of those. Um, More surprisingly, University of Chicago, only because it's always been known as a quant school. Yeah. Which is kind of the antithesis of what entrepreneurship is all about. But like you, right, um, when I did my first startup, when I left McKinsey and did my first startup, it was unheard of for an mba of any type to be in a startup and yep. there was a lot of negative connotations right and and one of the the derogatory interpretations of the three letter mba acronym is mediocre but arrogant <laughs> okay <laughs> And there have been things that have been said that for every MBA on a startup team, deduct between $250,000 and $500,000 <laughs> from your valuation. Right. So you obviously were starting at a point of great skepticism. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And, and I think for good reason. Okay? Of course. I think, unfortunately, for better or worse, a lot of these programs over the years um, employed faculty that had PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, in entrepreneurship, but they never started much a pra- company. That's right, no much practical experience. And, and we all know, right, this is a completely different world. You can't learn this stuff by reading about it. It requires deeply experiential learning. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that Byrne and Poets and Quants gets right is they get right down to the brass tacks of, you know, what are some of the keys that distinguish the best entrepreneurship programs from the mediocre and the also rants. And in this first survey, they're going to look at twenty-seven schools, and to lay it out for my global listeners right now, twenty-four of the twenty-seven are Mm U.S.-based. Not surprisingly, the two today that are, um, you know, that are being rated the highest outside in Europe, one is INSEAD. Yep, love INSEAD. Okay, and then the second one is uh, Isada, Mm -hmm. and then the the mashup of the China Europe International business school is the only one that has a a foot in Asia today. Okay. So these are the 27 schools and, and some of the results will not surprise you. And and if you look at the top MBA programs in general, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a pretty high correlation with many of those and the top, you know, entrepreneurship concentrations, but then there's some real sleepers that I think will surprise you. And we're going to get into the criteria But at the end of the day, what I think Poets and Quants does very rigorously is they look at over the last five years, which schools have started the most companies, Mm -hmm. which founders have raised the most capital. Okay. That's the measure of a successful entrepreneur. Have you been able to sell your idea? Have you been able to take the knowledge that you've gained and put it into practice And this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is not about qualitative stuff. And again, we recognize that, um, you know, five years is a long time in the world of entrepreneurship, especially given the kinds of ventures that most of these young kids are pursuing today, which tend to be technology enabled, if not outright technology ventures. So five years is, you're going to figure out pretty quickly whether you know what you're doing in that period of time.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think it's it's a great, uh, I'm looking forward to us diving into it because I think for many people, it does become the question, well, what if I don't get into those particular programs that, um, you know, have the networks, have the, the backing and those types of, uh, of funds to support the entrepreneur? Uh, obviously, we've seen accelerators and things like that, like Y Combinator, we mentioned before. They're filling some of that gap uh, yeah. for some of these programs, but let's get into it when we come back from break. That's great. Let's take a break. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at I Want In at Podcast dot com or This Is Cool at Podcast dot com. Thank you. Okay. We're back. Um, so Mike, as, as we were talking and I was doing the research on this episode, um, I noticed that you know, in one of the surveys and I was quite surprised by it, I noticed Harvard was at the top of the list of, of, of um, schools that have more companies uh, that coming out of it. What what can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. You know, so this is really a remarkable thing. So, you know, as far back as sort of the dot-com boom, right. Harvard had no presence at all in yeah. the world of entrepreneurship. It was, it was just, just not part of their DNA. They were all about general management and it was all about, you know, going to consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain and big investment banks like Goldman and JP Morgan. But when Dean Natin Noria joined the school, you know, and, and I think he was wise enough to see some of the trends happening in society and decided that Harvard would make a significant investment in entrepreneurship. Now remember, just in a recent episode, we announced he is retiring after about ten years. Yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. But what I will say is, if you think about Harvard, very late to the game, but just like everything they do when they do things, they do it right. So when we had Patrick in here, yeah, Patrick talked about the fact that Harvard invested seventy million dollars building their own MOOC platform.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
0: So does money matter? Of course, but more importantly, I think is the alumni network. That Harvard is so privileged to have, right? So for a very long time, uh, the dominant background of East Coast VCs,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, all went through one path. They were Harvard MBAs, just like in, you know, Silicon Valley, most of the VCs have a Stanford, GS, Stanford, MBA. yeah,
1: the Stanford background. So
0: when Harvard decided to make the investment, they started bringing in some very talented alumni Jeff Boostgang, who is a very highly respected guy here in Boston, who went on to become a professor in the practice, mm-hmm. and Cigar Ghosh, who was one of the founders of, uh, of a very early cybersecurity company uh, operating at about the same time that, you know, I was um, helping to drive one of my first cybersecurity startups back in the mid-90s. So mm. they started to really assemble a lot of talent. And, and I've watched the program evolve over time. And as a professor who relies often on their case studies, mm-hmm. the amount of content that they've created to, to drive entrepreneurship uh, education is remarkable. Uh, they formed what they call the Harvard Innovation Labs. Yep, yep. Okay. And, and, you know, and I can go on and on, but I think the measure that you're referring to here is that more startups have been founded by Harvard MBA graduates yeah. over the last four or five years than any school,
1: period, including Stanford. Yeah, no, it was surprising to me. I mean, it was Harvard first, uh, 356 companies, and this is all between a period of uh, 2014 to 2018. And, you know, 356 Harvard grads, uh, you know, some are, are involved in some way of founding, co-founding. Stanford is second with 297. Wharton is next with 216. Then it's Columbia at 146, MIT Sloan, and then Booth. And what's the uh,
0: number on MIT Sloan? MIT is
1: 137.
0: Okay. 137 yeah. companies. So it's it's way below what I would have yes. expected. Yeah. And and I also think it's a fascinating thing because, you know, for many, many years, MIT looked across at Harvard and and you know, they didn't view them as competitors from a from an entrepreneurship point of view. But if you look at MIT, right, MIT still ranks very highly overall on the list. Absolutely. But where MIT really seems to um, have fallen quite far behind is, one, the amount of money raised by its alumni in, the, in that period. Hmm. Uh, and as I did a quick review of the list, right, the, the bottom line, the lowest amount, the threshold amount at, the, at number 100 was $5 million. Wow. The firm that came in number one, which was a Stanford school, raised $223 million. MIT only had one company in the top 100 in terms of the amount of money that was raised. Interesting, which is staggering to someone like me who has spent so much of my time at MIT as a senior lecturer, judge in the 100K. Yeah, right. I can go on and on. Um, so, but, but
1: why is that? I mean, that that's sort of to me, it's 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 absolutely the reverse of what I would expect because I do think that the companies that we associate with some of the most dynamic growths or dynamic ideas, a good bunch of them are MIT companies. Uh, I think, I I mean,
0: there's a a number of different, you know, uh, theories, right? So I would say that because more and more startups are tech-enabled, but not tech, right? MIT is very good at starting pure tech companies. There you go. But they don't necessarily have the same level of skills for starting tech-enabled companies. The head of the MIT entrepreneurship program, the Martin Trust, goes on to describe in the interview that uh, Byrne did with him that MIT is not focused on company formation. But I I find that to be um, disingenuous because MIT has made a huge deal over the years of if they were an economy, they'd be the fourth largest economy in the world mm-hmm. based on the number of companies they formed and the amount of jobs they've created and the amount of wealth they've created. So I, I do believe that perhaps there's a bit of a changing of the guard. And you know, Harvard seems to be attracting a lot more of the, of the world-class faculty. Um, if you look at sort of you know, the comparative analysis between the two faculties, I think Harvard's got a much more accomplished uh, you know, MBA faculty based on people that have been out, out there, been there, done that. Well, so let's talk about
1: that a little <laughs> bit, right? So, because I think even in my my own experience, uh, having um, being asked to guest lecture a couple of uh, courses at NYU uh, in the in their uh, SCPS program, uh, continuing edu- education program, it, it often is those classes where if the faculty is really doing a lot of research, they are. I'm not saying that they don't have the 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 work experience, but to to the point about PhDs, they'll bring you in as a guest lecturer so you can talk from an industry perspective and see and talk to the students about what's happening. Right. What it seems to me is that the schools that are getting it right uh, and probably attracting the right level of of interest from schools from from from, from uh, applicants are the ones that incorporate. Uh, either founders or co-founders, people with real life experience to lead some of those programs and build the curriculum because they know what they should have known or rather they, they know what they didn't know. and So they can kind of craft the curriculum, but to perhaps be a part of that process rather than just have it be, uh, you know, uh, purely lecture. I mean, the case method coming out of Harvard, which is a standard in many business B schools, right? Um, it It has helped to translate some of the challenges that um, a, a new startup might have so that it's tangible. But the next step to me is bringing in those people to actually be the lecturers. Absolutely. Well, what can you tell us about that? Yeah,
0: and again, as, as someone who has, you know, taught in this space for 22 mm-hmm. years, there's no question, right? And, and students will tell you outright, right? Students notice if, if a faculty member has real-world experience or if they haven't. And I think going back to the previous episode, right? If you think about an entrepreneur who is in their forties or fifties yep. and who's had real company building experience, right? right?
1: S- failure, success, failure, success, all of the above, yep. right? Because you yep. can't
0: have one without the other. Yep. Um, and then decide, okay, I've done, I've paid my dues to the startup gods. Now I'm going to, you know, share my knowledge with someone, right? Infinitely more valuable than someone who has a PhD in entrepreneurship and and just doesn't have... The you know the the hands-on experience right and I and you know you and I are both parents and I always ask people you know do you really think you could understand what it's like to be a parent until (laughs) until you've had a child and you've you know you've raced to the emergency room at two in the morning with your child yep it's it's inconceivable you don't know what you don't know and until you've sweated payroll until you've had a fire a friend or a colleague that you've you know that you've been through the wars with Mm -hmm. you just don't know yeah so what's interesting Nikiso is uh, I think you know. Poets and Quants gets it right, because when they do uh, the analysis of the criteria, right? Entrepreneurial research, the entrepreneurial research score, which is the number of articles that professors of these programs have published in the last three years, gets only about a 10% rating. Hmm. And I suspect even that is something that they probably had to think twice about probably rating it that high, just because they didn't <laughs> want to look like they were completely sort of rogue here. But these are some of the criteria that are offered by poets and quant. So the number or the percentage of electives in entrepreneurship,
2: mm-hmm.
0: half of Stanford's courses, half of the elective course, half in the MBA program are entrepreneurially focused. Wow. Wow. The Gozieta School, you talked about Coca-Cola in the yeah, last episode, yeah. the Gozieta School at, at Emory, only 6%. Okay. And Emory Gozieta is one of the 27. Everybody I mentioned will be, you know, in one of these 27 companies companies, uh, the percentage of startups that were launched in the last three years on a per capita basis, Washington University, Mm -hmm. 21%. Wow. The USC Marshall School, 0.5%. It's one of the top 27, but they, they obviously are not doing a very good job um, and, and, and I, I love the acronym for USC, University of Spoiled Children. So maybe they, <laughs> they don't need to start a company. Don't,
1: don't bring your entrepreneurial yeah, hat yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just keep it at home.
0: Yeah. And then the percentage of students in the entrepreneurship club, UCLA with a whopping 83% of their students in the MBA program. Huh. And, and you know with somebody like Babson, it, it's almost redundant, right? I mean, the whole university is an entrepreneurship club. The Rice University Jones School of Business, only about 3% of their Students in the MBA program are studying entrepreneurship, which is interesting. That's, that's surprising, actually. They're in Houston, Texas. And so maybe that's just a, you know, it's, you know, the thought of starting up an oil and gas company or something <laughs> like that is just not as, not as interesting. This is a very interesting one. The, the amount of accelerator space to student ratio. Mm-hmm. Emory University, 116 square feet of space per student. Stanford has zero accelerator space devoted to students, which is surprising to me. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just so easy to go find places to work at Stanford, you don't need it. But it just, it was surprising to me to see that Stanford did not have any accelerator space dedicated to students. And then the ratio of entrepreneurs and residents to full-time MBAs, Mm -hmm. um, the University of Minnesota at Carlson, 58%, um, meaning that, you know, there's like one mentor or 0.6 mentors for every person. The China Entrepreneurship, uh, Europe uh, International Business School has 0%, so they haven't gotten to the EIR thing yet. Um, New venture money made available by the schools Mm -hmm. to full-time MBAs. Rice comes in at about 3 million USD. And Asada out of Barcelona comes in at zero. And then the Entrepreneur Research Score, the University of Indiana at Kelly, they have published 21 articles on, on entrepreneurship. Uh, over the last several years, while the University of Chicago Booth has published a zero, huh. and surprisingly, MIT is down at the very bottom of this list. They they've published you know three quarters of an article in the last four years. So these are some of the criteria, yeah, that schools use. But it looks like it's time for us to take a break, and we'll come back and we'll dig into really the more important metrics, which is. Number of companies started, amount of money raised, etc. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, we, we obviously could keep going, but uh, let's, let's take a break. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. We're back. So, Mike, let's continue the conversation. I, I think it's fascinating to think about, uh, so what does it actually mean uh, if you are an entrepreneur, you go to these schools, uh, where, where do you get your funding from? Who's funding you? And where are those uh, funders uh, coming from themselves in terms of their educational background? Yeah. Maybe let's talk about some of that. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, there's no question that some of these universities have wealthy alum who may donate a certain amount of money to a seed fund. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing an increasing amount of that happening, but these are not big numbers, right? And as we saw, the largest of all of these was Rice with $3 million. So there's only so far $3 million can go. So what Poet & Quant does right is they get right down to it. Mm -hmm. These are companies that were founded at specific campuses. This is the amount of venture capital money they've raised. So this is not a dress rehearsal. Mm -hmm. These students are going into the market and they're competing with older entrepreneurs, as we talked about in the previous episode, and they're raising capital. So let's just talk about a few, right? So, love it. So, they rank the top 100 MBA startups mm-hmm. and they do it in order by the amount of money raised. So, the first company is known as Branch. Branch was founded by four students at Stanford. In fact, Stanford takes the first three or four slots. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very diverse team. You've got uh, Dimitri, who's r- uh, Russian descent, Alex, you've got Maida, who's from the Middle East, Mike, who's American. They've raised $242 million from top-tier Silicon Valley venture capitalists. And as we said, when you think about it, um, so many of the Silicon Valley VCs are Stanford GSB MBA grads. So, you know, they, they obviously have uh, in that ecosystem that is unique to Silicon Valley between their professors and the mentors and everybody that's around them and probably their guest lecturers. Mm-hmm. They've got access to world-class capital. Not surprisingly, the second company that comes in uh, is also a Stanford team, also four people. Um, and this one happens to have been the ag tech space. And what okay. we're going to see with this list is uh, the diversity of categories that students are thinking about is, is very broad. That's there's, awesome. There's no one dominant category by any means. They've raised $225 million. Um, the third company, uh, it's got a couple of founders. Ravigo mm-hmm. in the logistics space raised two hundred and sixteen million dollars. So, and it's only when we get to number four that Harvard figures into the mix, and it's another ag tech. We're going to see a, a good deal of ag tech, right? And we had our discussion with um, Aero Farms not that long ago, right? Um, so Harvard Business School, two founders, uh, Farmers Business Network, very interesting name for a couple <laughs> of Harvard kids, uh, one hundred ninety-three million dollars. And then going back to uh, Chicago now, first time Chicago winds up on the list in the Booth School, uh, Block Tower Capital in the cryptocurrency space has raised $140 million. And then we get back to our neck of the woods, New York City, and we've got two schools from Columbia. The first one of all in the energy space Mm -hmm. called Rig Up raised $124 million. Um, And then the second one is called Away that raised $107 million. So if we just round out the top 10, uh, Northwestern comes in with a company called Four Kites. It raised just about $100 million in the logistics space. And then Virginia's Darden School comes in at exactly a $100 million raise uh, in the consulting space, which is interesting. Hmm. So, you know, we could go on through this list, but the, if we get down to number 100, the smallest raise is $5 million. And when you think about the age- What school, what school cases, was that? So at the bottom of the list, you have to give me a second to flip through the study. So while you're doing that,
1: I'm fascinated that um, it seems to be, uh, especially when I think about the distribution of Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley across all of these, um, these schools that you know, the, the, there's a presence here on the uh, on the you know, Silicon Alley or uh, the, the Eastern Corridor as far as representation, and it's not just uh, everything in Stanford.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. No, it's it's. I mean, listen, it's the list is incredibly diverse. Um, UCal San Diego, uh, a company called AIRA. A I R A. Uh, And it's AI based and augmented reality based healthcare, so digital health. Interesting. But what's really remarkable to me is how dominant Stanford and Harvard are on this list. They dominate the list. What's remarkable to me is how little MIT Mm -hmm. um, exists on this list, and and that was really one of the eye-opening things. But you know, UCal Berkeley is is on this, and pretty much every company that we've talked about. Um, so far. But let me maybe now go through who is on this list and just explain a little bit. So very high degree of correlation between the top MBA programs in general mm-hmm. and those that have made investments in entrepreneurship and are, are amongst the top here. So now that we've gone through all the criteria and we've sort of dug in pretty deeply to, you know, which schools excel In which attributes? Why don't we now get to the list? And the list is going to surprise a lot of people, as much for who's on the list as who's not on the list. The rather surprising winner on the first ever Poets and Quants study on top entrepreneurship programs at the MBA level globally goes through Washington University, and. That is in St. Louis, Missouri, not a not a place where a lot of people have uh, thought about innovation and entrepreneurship as a core part of the DNA, but it is that. And we're going to dig into that in a couple of minutes and explain exactly why. But why don't I just set the table here and talk about some of the other companies? And by the way, the, the normalized score is that Washington University uh, has a final score of 100 and everybody is compared to that benchmark. The second school, not at all a surprise, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, sitting in the heart of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California. Uh, from the days of Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard founding HP in 1939, um, Stanford has long, a long and very, very proud history of entrepreneurship, especially tech and tech-enabled entrepreneurship. So they come in with a final score of about 72 and a half. Third on the list is Babson, and remember, this is for Babson's MBA program. We will be talking about Babson's undergraduate program. This is the Babson Olin College, and what's interesting is, the Washington University is also the Olin College of Business. And if you don't know the name Olin, O L I N, Olin, Olin uh, was a very successful industrial company that endowed a foundation, and they have played a significant role in endowing a number of world-class institutions, also notably the Olin College of Engineering here in the Boston area, which is co-located on the same general campus as Babson. So the name Olin continues to come up positively time and again. Coming in at number four is the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Their Ross score comes in as, as a, at 70. And then another potentially surprising entry is ISADA. ISADA is a graduate law and management program that comes out of Barcelona, Spain. And then all the way down at number six, with a score that is about half of the leader Washington University, is MIT coming in with a score of 52. And then the first school that actually has a footprint, at least partially in Asia, The China-Europe International Business School, CEIBS, comes in with a score of 51. Another rather surprising entry is the University of Minnesota's Carlson School, coming in at 50. And then the numbers start to cluster. So very quickly behind the University of Minnesota, we have UCLA, the Anderson School of Business at 47. And we have UC Berkeley, the Haas School of Business, at almost exactly the same score, 46.9. We'll round out the list with Rice University, score of 56.5, Harvard coming in with a score of 46, UChicago Booth coming in with a score of 46, Carnegie Mellon roughly 45.5, INSEAD out of Europe 43.5, Kelly School out of Indiana with 43, and I'll just read a few more, and then we'll dig into some of these and explain why they wound up where they did. At number 17 is the Kellogg School at Northwestern. At 18 is the Yale School of Management. Yale is coming in at 38. University of Texas at Austin, McComb School of Business at 34, and Columbia coming in at 33. The list continues, and again, I direct all of you to the Poets and Quants postings on this, but let's look at a couple. So I think one of the ones that, of course, our listeners are going to be very surprised about is what's going on in St. Louis. So Washington University didn't even have an entrepreneurship program until about 2008. And at that time, the Olin School of Business founded the scandalara Center for Interdisciplinary Innovation and in Entrepreneurship. Right? That was done in 2002, but they didn't really hire anybody, their first-time entrepreneurship faculty member, until 2008. At the time that they started the center, they had just two courses. One was an introduction entrepreneurship course. The other was the hatchery, which was an incubator class within the Scandellaris Center. But over the period of time between 2008 and now, they've launched 15 entrepreneurship-focused electives over the last 12 years. And they've recently infused the entire curriculum with entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is now considered one of the school's four pillars of its strategic plan. I can tell you as a faculty member that that is a big deal. Right? Getting large institutions, large, prestigious universities to change their curriculum is really unusual, um you know, and and be able to do it in the way that they did. and And what they basically say is very simple. It's about not just creating startups, but it's about creating an entrepreneurial mindset that all students can use that is crucial to any kind of innovation, including corporate innovation or social innovation. So my congratulations to the uh, the Washington University's Olin School of Business for being the inaugural winner of the Poets and Quants Global MBA Entrepreneurship Ranking. Another school that may come as a surprise to some people would certainly be ASADA. ASADA may not be known to most of my listeners. I can tell you that I've had the privilege of doing some guest lectures for ASADA students here in Boston and taking them through uh, a comparative analysis of the entire global innovation ecosystem. I was very impressed with the program, Uh, incredibly diverse. While there certainly are a lot of students from Europe, there were certainly a significant number from the Americas, from Asia. Um, many of them were actually running businesses while they are matriculating at Asada. These were EMBAs primarily, but, um, you know, it gave me a very, very robust understanding of sort of the the ethos and the energy of the school. So that was great. We've talked at length about MIT Sloan. Um, again, it is rather surprising to see them coming in at about half of where the leaders are. Um interesting to see both UCLA and UC Berkeley clustered right at almost the exact same um, scoring as, you know, almost tied between ninth and 10th. And what I think is interesting is UC Berkeley obviously is operating uh, just North of uh, San Francisco, just North of what is considered the most robust ecosystem in the world in Silicon Valley. So I've got to believe that over time, as Berkeley continues to make significant investments in its program, and we'll talk more about them in the next episode, that we'll see some separation. Babson is interesting because it occupies such a uniquely high level on both lists. Of course, we're talking about the Babson Olin School with regard to MBAs. Um, Babson is a very unique institution. You feel the the entrepreneurial energy on that campus. And even though it may be located in the suburbs, very, very tony suburbs west of Boston, um, that has not in any way kept it from being able to get access to the great Boston innovation ecosystem, although a lot of these companies are not tech companies. But I think they have the dual benefit of that. So listen, no list is perfect. No ranking program is perfect but I do think it's a huge leap forward for those of you who are out there thinking about where do I go learn about entrepreneurship uh, when I'm studying at an MBA level. I think the criteria that were selected make a lot of sense. Um, I think the fact that this does shake up the rankings dramatically tells you just how out of the box the thinking was. And that's really what entrepreneurship and innovation is all about. So for uh, a little preview of our next episode, right? And to really reinforce a couple of different, very interesting, I think, extremely effective communities that have been created. I'm going to have the privilege of interviewing Carolyn Winnett. She is the executive director of the University of California, Berkeley Skydeck, which is an accelerator and incubator operating out of the tallest building in the city of Berkeley, California. And the progress that they've made over the course of her uh, tenure as leader there has been remarkable, and I look forward to having that discussion with her and sharing that with you. And then the second person that I will be interviewing as part of that same episode will be Ha Young Park. Ha Young was born and raised in South Korea. He's been a student at Babson. I got to know him when I was appointed to the board of the Babson Entrepreneurship Tower. Um, He is currently on sabbatical from his studies at Babson, where he is uh, taking his company into the market with relentless focus without the burden of the academic studies interfering with that. So we're also going to have a chance to talk to Ha Young about, you know, why entrepreneurship, why Babson, what the eTower, a very unique community, has been able to do for him. And that will be in our upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. And with that, we're going to pause for a break.
1: All right, we're back. So, Mike, uh, why don't we talk about some of the
0: undergraduate programs? Yeah, and just for the matter of, of being complete, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, there's no question that there's a there's a very very solid list of universities, and what I've seen at the undergraduate level has been very impressive. But not surprisingly, Babson. and now I'm using the U.S. News and World U.S. Uh, News and World Report. Uh, absent anything. <laughs> As a substitute, right, so it's so, not
1: Poets and Quants.
0: It's not Poisson and Quants. <laughs> so I want to make it clear. This is this is still the go-to. Maybe at some point, if Poets and Quants uh, extends its uh, its analysis, it'll go down to the university level. But not surprisingly, Babson is the dominant force. Twenty-five consecutive years. Jeez. Their one hundred year history. They just celebrated the hundredth anniversary of the school in September. Remarkable. Um, university on many levels. Uh, So they're ranked number one at the undergraduate and Mm -hmm. at the graduate level, you could do a lot worse than finding your way to Babson. Um, What I will tell you is as someone who's spending more and more time there, um, I love the energy. Now, this is not a tech based Mm -hmm. institution. So I'm on the board of something called the entrepreneurship tower and the entrepreneurship tower was founded as far back as 2001. And it's a residential community Mm. where um, you you have to get in through very competitive means. And everybody in that tower, all 21 students are running their own startup.
1: Oh, interesting. So while
0: they are matriculating. Wow. Okay?
1: So not just entrepreneur in residence as a, yeah. as a, you know, as a, as a name, it's really, this is the ethos of the whole thing.
0: This group of young men and women, and it's a very balanced group gender-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, They eat, breathe and sleep entrepreneurship. What I love about this group is how supportive they are of one another. Um, when Babson celebrated its 100th anniversary, they were given the ability to run what they call the second century e-pitch competition. Mm -hmm. And so it was a remarkably successful event. Um, And then, you know, co-resident with this group is something called the Code Club. And the Babson Code Club is trying to bring more of a tech entrepreneurship-oriented mindset to the school. But uh, as I just uh, reported recently on LinkedIn, Um, Arthur Blank, who is a Babson alumni and who is one of the co-founders of Home Depot and happens to be in that club that uh, owns the NFL team, the Atlanta Falcons, Mm -hmm. just made a $50 million personal gift to the school to form a center of entrepreneurship leadership. So this school is only going to get stronger. Wow. Stanford, no surprise, being in the Valley where entrepreneurship uh, runs through the blood. Here, MIT is number three, Harvard, number four, which I was surprised about. I just don't think of Harvard undergrad as something more, you know, any more than a school where you go and study liberal arts, you study the sciences, but um, maybe they've made the same play. I haven't been paying attention at the undergrad level. And then UCAL Berkeley, mm-hmm. UPenn, University of Michigan and Ar- Ann Arbor, and Indiana University, all of these consistently come up on both lists. Right. Right. So you know what I will tell you is that I'm seeing at the undergraduate uh, institutions um, access to increasingly well-funded entrepreneurship competitions, often accelerators, often seed money that is made available, uh, incredible mentorship programs, incredible study abor- abroad programs. So right. if you want to really get to what entrepreneurship is, and you're sure, and right? And when I meet a lot of these young Babson kids, mm-hmm. they started their first venture when they were 10, 11, 12, right? So it's just in their blood, in their blood yeah. and they, they could not imagine studying anything else. So again, you know, entrepreneurship is the future. Um, I do believe that, you know, if you do study entrepreneurship, the ability to learn a little bit about coding or a little bit about the world of technology uh, would serve you well. Yeah. And to the extent that you have the capacity to get some liberal arts in um, just to expand your mind. Yep. I think those things would be invaluable but you know this is the world of undergraduate institutions uh and these are very global programs I can tell you that the uh the the diversity on the Babson campus is striking absolutely Fantastic. striking
1: wow yeah I think things like uh it, it becomes clearer as you look at schools like Babson or you go to R you know RPI or is in a much more of a you know design school but it, just in terms of the Types of people that are thinking and forward-thinking. It, it's it's many of these schools have a mix in terms of their diversity. It really is um, one of the things that's been striking to me, and I think it reflects uh, not only the interest for the students who are coming to the U.S. to study, but also the 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 ones that are attending these U.S. schools that have this mix. This is the cultural norm that they're growing up in, anyway. Uh, so um, it's almost as if some of these ideas I get incubated uh, and start, uh, you know. Um, happen in these places because they're getting so many different influences from, uh, from their peers.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: and I think that that's one of the things that, uh, just in terms of listening to you talk about some of the, 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 the programs that at at Babson or the students that come out of it, just an interesting group of, of, uh, of, of kids. You know? Yeah,
0: and I would tell you the energy. I mean, there, there's just such a unique sense of confidence, and not arrogance, but confidence mm-hmm. and enthusiasm. And it's quite contagious, quite frankly, to yeah. hang around with these kids from the E-Tower. Awesome. Yeah, they're really, and, and I guess in, as we wrap this up, um, let's connect back sort of to the previous episode. Yeah. So remember in the previous episode, we talked about the, the great myth of age and entrepreneurship and that the average age of entrepreneurs that have created truly world-changing companies is around 45 or 46. That being said, right, for those of you who are committed to becoming founders and entrepreneurs in your 20s, Yes, the odds are stacked against you. And all I will say is do yourself a favor. Bring on board an advisory board. Bring on board mentors. Bring on board people that can challenge you, Mm -hmm. that can help you avoid the potholes that you inevitably will hit and listen to them. Because, you know, you've got someone who's out there in their mid-40s or so, and they've done this a few times. It doesn't matter if it's in your space or not. There's a lot of commonality. Please Build out an advisory board sooner rather than later. None of us have all the answers.
1: Yeah, you got to live outside the echo chamber, right? So, well, fantastic conversation as usual. I think we will wrap with uh, three things. Uh, So we'll be back uh, with three things. Thank you. All right, we're back. So, Mike, let's get into three things. What you got for me?
0: Yeah, so let's, you know, as we, as we continue to build on the discussions of this episode, there's no question there are young entrepreneurs that have the fever. They want to start a company. And as I've been exposed to more and more entrepreneurs from outside the United States, mm-hmm. um, there's an extremely high bar for them to jump over. And I want to make sure that our listeners are aware of a relatively unique venture capital fund. Called Unshackled Ventures, awesome, and yeah. Unshackled Ventures is created specifically to help immigrants to support them, to help them through some of the immigration processes, and to get them funded to start their own venture. So, why don't you share with our listeners some of what you've? Yeah, read about
1: yeah, them? I, th- I think that's a, You're you're absolutely right. Unshackled Ventures is is fantastic, Mike. I mean, it it, it, it an interesting study point uh, that uh, was done by the National Foundation for American Policy in 2018 found that. Immigrant founders are responsible for 55% of U.S. billion-dollar companies or unicorns. So if you think about uh, Uber, SpaceX, uh, WeWork, uh, Palantir Technologies, Stripe, Slack, Moderna Therapeutics, Robinhood, I mean, th- you could name a whole bunch. These are all immigrant-founded companies, which we don't typically know that. Nobody talks about it in that way. So those are interesting points for people to have in terms of references.
0: Absolutely. And, and again, this is why I have so many concerns about the policies that we've put in place over the last several years that have made it that much harder for immigrants to, you know, get jobs in our innovation economy and contribute to the, the, the long-term success absolutely, of the U.S. economy. But anyway, for those of you who are uh, from out of the country and have come here, have studied entrepreneurship, are wondering, you know, is there a way for me to continue to fund my dream? I would recommend strongly that you think about connecting to Unshackled Venture. Awesome. All right. Number two, uh, we spent a good part of this episode talking about entrepreneurship at MBA programs. Mm -hmm. All is not well in the world of U.S. MBA programs these days for obvious reasons. That Mm -hmm. shall go unstated. But I will say that 70% of all full-time two-year MBA programs are seeing a decline in applications. Mm. Online programs, almost 60%. Full-time one-year, 55%. Uh, executive 50%. So just across the board declines in applications to US MBA programs. Now, does that mean that they're declining globally? No, just the opposite. So we're seeing almost a 10% increase in Mm Asia-Pac. We're seeing about a 7.5% increase in Canada. And we're seeing about a 3% increase in Europe, while we're seeing about a 7, 8% decline in the US. So bottom line is, is that um, the list that we just spent quite a bit of time talking about could change pretty dramatically Yeah, as we see a shift in the center of gravity uh, toward you know other outlying regions. So I would expect that over time, we'll see more European con- uh, schools and even Chinese schools that will be sitting on uh, the Poet & Quant list of the top entrepreneurial training programs at, at MBA institutions worldwide.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Mike. I would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> Listen to some of our previous episodes and you kind yeah. of you get the gist <laughs> yeah. of it. Uh, what you got for number three?
0: Yeah. And so let's wrap up this as episode with a little bit of uh, a philosophical approach. So uh-huh. uh, I've long been a fan of the HBO show, Silicon Valley. <laughs> and when the show was founded in 2014, boy, the world was a different place. Absolutely. We had a different president uh-huh. running our country. Um, no one had yet discovered that uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos was a pathological <laughs> liar and Ponzi scheme creator. Silicon Valley could do no wrong. They were heroic figures. Uh, they were revered. Um, but one of my favorite quotes from this entire show uh, goes to season two. Gavin Belsom, who plays the CEO of Hooli. Hooli is a very, very uh, transparent stand-in for Google. <laughs> uh, I don't want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place than we do. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is, it's funny, but it's true. And you know everybody in Silicon Valley was about making the world a better place, and I think that in its last season, after a great run, uh, and for those of you who have never watched the show, if you aspire to be entrepreneurs, go watch the show. I promise you, (laughs) it is very realistic and very intelligent. Um, But the bottom line is, it's it's reflecting the times. It's much bleaker, much darker, and it really is asking the question: Can greed? coexist with doing good Mm -hmm. and the answers are not easy ones but if anybody's up to the task Mike Judge the same guy that created that incredible cult movie Office Space is so that's (laughs) what I got for this week
1: fantastic Mike what a great way to end this episode Uh, we're looking forward to the next conversation Uh, please join us again Uh, thank you and keep listening that's our segment for today join us next week as we bring you more on Disruptive Innovation To find notes from the show, links to interesting articles, and see what's coming next week, follow us on social media. On Twitter, you can find us using the handle Disruptive Innovation Podcast and visit our blog at DisruptiveInnovation.live. Until next week, from Nikiso and Mike, bye for now.